Please stand if you're able for today's lesson in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man should not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, Randy, thank you so much for reading our lesson uh, this morning and grace and peace in the name of Christ to each of you. It is wonderful to be back home uh, with you after a couple of weeks and certainly want to add my word of greeting to that of Casey to our online community. Uh, it is a great honor to be with all of you in worship wherever you are today and it is a real privilege that you have joined us today. Um, I have a, a dear, dear friend from way back who is with us this morning that I want to say a word to. Dr. Tim Cloyd is with us sitting right in front of Jim Ziegler. Um, and Tim is the president of Drury University in Springfield, Missouri. Uh, we grew up together. Both of our fathers were pastors at one point in the same church at McKendry, which is also where Jim Ziegler was a member. Um, and so, Tim, it's great to see you. It's been great to spend some time with you. And uh, it is so good to be back with you all. I want to say a word of thanks to Casey and Jonathan for their preaching while I was out. They they concluded uh, the Ten Commandments series, and as you know, I gave them a couple of softball texts that they preached on. Uh, one was on adultery. Jonathan took care of that, and Casey did lying and cheating. So, uh, thank you for doing that. I did not plan to be out on those days, but you can believe I was thankful to be out on those days. Uh, also, I want to thank Adam Jones. Uh, many of you were here Wednesday night. How many of you were here Wednesday night for the imposition of ashes? Many of you were and we had a noon service and 6.30 service, and we began our Lenten pilgrimage together. And it was, it was just a wonderful time. Uh, the two Sundays that we were out, uh, one of those Sundays, Sherry and I were in Noonan, Georgia, a couple of weeks ago, and had the privilege of hearing our son, Andrew, 
preach at Noonan First Methodist where he's been appointed. And that was a great, great privilege. And, and Stephanie, the second Sunday, we were at Lawrenceville First Church. That's, that's your home church too. And I had the privilege of preaching the bicentennial service. And of course, saving the best for last, we had a chance to visit our grandson while we were out. Um, he is now 15 months old. He is walking, talking, and as you can say, see, praying. Uh, he's prepared for this season. He speaks six languages and um, already doing trigonometry. And so we're, it's good to be home. Last Wednesday night, we started a journey that we call Lent, and we call it Lent because it's short for lengthen. The days are lengthening now. Winter will soon turn to spring. The days are longer, thank God. The nights are shorter. In the tradition of the church, it's a 40-day period that calls us to a deep sense of repentance, sorrow for sin, a season of renewal, a season of prayer. When I, you, we recommit ourselves anew to the way of the cross, which is the path of self-denial, which is the path of, of self-emptying, of self-sacrifice. And, and Jesus was very plain about this with his disciples. You see this in Matthew 16, right after the big fisherman was the first to confess that you're the Messiah. Jesus said, hey, if you want to follow me, this is what you're going to have to do. You've got to deny yourself, pick up a cross, and follow me. This is our culture, cross-bearing. Cross-bearing, quite simply, is about voluntary acts of shared suffering, where we don't avoid it, we don't circumvent it, we share it with one another. And so this is why we often practice during these 40 days this this spiritual discipline that we call fasting, which is often abstaining from food. You can do intermittent fasting. I, I often do that on Sundays where I won't eat until later in the afternoon. And it's a way of doing without something good in order to focus on something that's ultimate. Fasting. I've heard all sorts of good ideas. I've heard some this morning, as a matter of fact. After the 8.30 service, there was a woman who came and said, well, in, in my fasting, what I'm doing, I'm not really giving up something. I'm writing two letters every day to people that God brings to mind that perhaps I need to encourage who are having a hard time. And that would be 92 letters if you count the days of Lent because it's not just 40, it's 46. But the Sundays, the six Sundays, we don't count because those are little Easter's church fathers and mothers called them. And so that's not a day of penitence. That's a day of celebration. I remember in my last church in Lawrenceville, my secretary once during Lent gave up criticism for Lent. It was very, very quiet during the Lenten season. And I took the week off after Easter. Someone said it like this, Christian fasting at its root is the hunger of a homesickness for God. That's what it is. I don't know if you've felt it, but I've felt it in this new year. This, this hunger for Jesus, this hunger for connection 
this hunger for God. I, I, I sensed it in Noonan, in Lawrenceville. I felt it here in Brentwood. It's happening in Wilmore, Kentucky at Asbury, where three weeks ago, a group of college students, 15 or 20, after worship, started reading Scripture and confessing and there was no smoke and mirrors. There was just a group of people who began talking about their faith, and the Spirit fell. Mr. Wesley fasted twice a week, sun up to sundown. Incidentally, if you didn't know, this is what Jesus was doing in the wilderness, Randy, in the text that you read so well for us, Matthew 4. Jesus was fasting. For 40 days, he did without food and water. What was he doing? He was contemplating on his identity. He was thinking about his purpose and his sonship. And during his time apart, he was put to the test. Now, I've always been intrigued by, by the sequence in which the testing happened. Notice it happens right after his baptism in the Jordan. At the hands of John the Baptist, where there were many there who experienced this, the, the clouds parted, the dove descended, and the voice of God, the voice of the Father said, this, this one's mine. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And immediately after that experience, Matthew says he's driven into the wilderness. It's an intriguing sequence, but, but it's universal. It's common to all of us. Because haven't you ever discovered temptation always follows revelation? Always. Wilderness always follows water. Or let me put it like this. Baptism by fire always follows baptism by water. I mean, biblically, it was true for the Hebrew children, right? After their deliverance through the Red Sea out of Egyptian slavery, they were tested in the wilderness for how long? Forty years. That, that number 40, that's not a throwaway number. The number 40 is symbolic of a period of probation, of trial. Moses was at Sinai for 40 days. Elijah was in the wilderness for 40 days. Jonah warned Nineveh in his preaching for 40 days. Goliath talked smack to the Israelites for 40 days until David showed up. It's a period of probation, and so it was for Jesus. It's not an accident. Jesus is not being victimized by demonic power. Look at verse 1 again. And then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. Who's in charge? Satan? No. The Spirit of God is with us even in the barren places. Not to sabotage us, but to sustain us, to substantiate us. The journey of faith is not mountaintop to mountaintop to mountaintop. No, it leads right into the wilderness. It leads into the valley. And some of you are there today. I had the privilege of doing Bill Wolf's funeral on Friday. He was, uh, for a number of years, worked with the Board of Discipleship and Youth Ministry, traveled the country. And he was 85. Gene Cotton was here. Others were here. We sang these old songs from the 70s that we used to sing growing up. 
And then I read that passage from Psalm 23, yea, though I walk through the wilderness, the valley, I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to fear evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Jesus is in the wilderness. The Spirit is in the valley with us. What I want you to notice in this text, however, is the core or the crux of Satan's test. The issue isn't whether or not Jesus is the Son of God. The issue is about what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God. What it means. And it's interesting to me that all three of these scenarios are really kind of a diabolical attempt to get Jesus to misuse his power. That's what it's about. I think that's always what temptation is about. No matter what you do for a living, no matter your vocation, the object of temptation is to get me to use my God-given gifts, your strength, your power, for your own welfare and nobody else. A friend of mine was reminding me the other night of St. Augustine, what he said about sin. Get this. Sin is ultimately a lack of love, either for God or for your neighbor. He went on to say this. The essence of sin is disordered love. Whew. I need to think about that for a minute. What is disordered love? Disordered love means that we love less important things more and more important things less. And this misappropriation, this misprioritization of love leads to a deep unhappiness and, and maybe even bitterness and disorder and chaos. And I think you see this in the temptation scene. Turn these stones into bread is about personal appetite. Fulfill your personal appetites. Feed yourself. Or what Satan is saying to Jesus is break your fast. Have breakfast. Who needs spiritual concentration anyway? Who needs to pray and to fast? The second jump off of this steeple, jump off the pinnacle of the temple, is, is really about a religious spectacle Give us a performance. Give us a display. Pull a rabbit out of a hat, and then people will follow you anywhere. And the last fall down and worship me, what's that about? That's about political muscle. Use your power for your own empire. And it's always the same. Ever the same temptation. It's always about one thing, self-promotion, self-fulfillment, self-satisfaction, self-gratification, and I think it's the oldest trick in the book. In fact, you see this in Genesis 3 in the garden in Eden. You remember the serpent's test in the garden is not an opportunity to fall, but to rise. In fact, the serpent says to Adam and Eve, hey, do you want to be, it doesn't say, do you want to be like the devil? It says, do you want to assume the place of God? You can have it all. You can take God's place. And that's what it's about. Bishop Pennell, I think Bishop 
Pennell is with us today. He'll be with us in our leadership luncheon this afternoon. Have any of you read his ponderings before? I think you have. They're online. He wrote one last week that I have to tell you, I, I didn't appreciate. It was so convicting. <laughs> and I read it several times. And I want to share it with you. This is the bishop talking. There are times when I need to be honest with myself. In my pastoral ministry, I have often been more driven by my ego than servanthood. In my preaching, I've often tried to say what people wanted to hear rather than what Scripture says they needed to hear. I've often made pastoral calls to the hospital and to the homes of congregants to feed my own ego. I've often conducted meetings as a means of self-promotion. In these and other ways, I want to be recognized as a good pastor, a good person. But the gospel is crystal clear. Jesus tells us that to follow him, we have to deny ourselves, take up a cross, and follow. And then he asks this question. Could Jesus mean denying our false self? That version of me that wants a pat on the back is not really me. And then he says, here's the lesson. I must learn to surrender my ego so that God can work through me, not just in spite of me, rather than strive to make something of myself, I need to allow God to simply work through me. And then he concludes like this. An overactive ego can drive us along paths that we would never choose. Deep in my heart, I'd rather be known as a servant of the servants of God. And then here's his question, always finishes with a question. Why we are so driven by our ego rather than by what love requires is worth pondering. The struggle is real. What I want you to notice is that in every test, in these three scenarios, Jesus responds in the same manner. He counters temptation with Scripture. It is written, whenever you see it is written, you know we're getting ready to go to Torah. It is written, one does not live by bread alone. That's Deuteronomy 8, 3. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus didn't have to run and find a scroll. He knew the scripture. He memorized it, digested it. It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve God alone. That's Deuteronomy 6, 13. He didn't have to look it up. He knew the Torah was a part of him. As disciples in the Wesleyan tradition, we too believe in the primacy of scripture. But it's that second test that gets a little tricky. What I want you to notice is that Satan, Jesus is not the only one who can quote Scripture. Satan also quotes Scripture. And for a moment when I read that, I realize it turns out that Satan has a theology degree. He went to seminary. Probably Vanderbilt, not my seminary. He went to seminary, came to vacation church school uh, with all the other little devils. <laughs> he won the Bible drill in Sunday school, got a pen for perfect attendance. The devil knows scripture too. And what's interesting is some of these same, the same word for tempt 
is used of some of the priests in the synagogue with regard to Jesus. The devil uses scripture too, but not to build up, but to tear down. He takes Jesus to the steeple, to the pinnacle of the temple, and says, since you are God's son, jump. For it is written, here it comes, God will command the angels to protect you, to lift you up so that you will not dash your foot against the stone. That's right out of Psalms 91, verses 11 and 12. William Shakespeare once said, there's no error so gross, but that some sober brow will bless it with a proper text. And it looks like checkmate for Jesus. So what does he do? He quotes scripture against scripture. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. That's Deuteronomy 6, 16. What is he doing? Jesus is demonstrating the necessity of interpretation. You must not only know the text, but the context. And moreover, it helps to know the motive of the one reciting the text and the situation to which it is being applied. Because the devil is a master at taking scripture out of context. Now, I know I've said this over and over again, but this is true. That a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. And you know as well as I do that we can use this book as a hatchet or a scalpel. 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul speaking, says, Son, study to show yourself approved of God, a workman who need not be ashamed, rightly, rightly fitting, rightly dividing the word of truth. What is that phrase rightly dividing mean in the Greek it means to cut a clear path it means to interpret to articulate and I think as I've read the New Testament what what got Jesus into trouble so much with the Pharisees was because he was always saying you've heard it said but I say unto you and in fact, his entire Sermon on the Mount was a reinterpretation of the Torah in ways that got at the root of the text rather than to the letter of the law. And they nailed him because of it. You know, what made, you know what's made the difference for me in my wilderness? It's not just that Jesus knows the word. It's that Jesus is the word the living word in other words he doesn't just quote it and recite it he embodies it even in the wilderness even on the cross barbara brown taylor said it like this the whole purpose of the bible it seems to me is to convince people to occasionally set the written word down in order to become living words in the world for jesus sake for me she says this willing conversion of ink to blood is the full substance of our faith jesus said it like this not everyone who confesses lord lord will enter into the kingdom but she or he who does the will of God. 
Sometimes we need Bible studies and sometimes we need Bible doings. I think New Song is one of those. Last word. In our time apart, Sherry and I, I, I was Googling some information about Howard Thurman. Do you know that name? Wonderful man of God, brilliant teacher. I went to Spelman College, taught at Howard University in the 50s and 60s. He taught at Boston University, and my, what a draw he was to some of my forefathers in the faith who came before me. Dr. Thurman, I found several lectures that he had given. These are old lectures. And I found one that he had given where he tells a story of when he was a little boy growing up. He said, I used to love to shoot marbles. And he said, I was pretty good at it. And my mother allowed me to do it with one exception, with one rule. I could never play for keeps, my mother said. I'm not to take someone else's marbles. And one day he said, I was walking to town and I saw a boy at the corner. I knew of him. His father was a man of means. And I knew that the boy wasn't very gifted at playing marbles, but he had all the marbles a kid could ever want. And I asked him if he wanted to play, and he said, yes. And having no marbles of my own, I said, can I borrow some of yours? And he said, yes. And then I asked him if he wanted to play for keeps. And he said, yes. After 20 or 30 minutes, Howard said, I had taken all I wanted, which incidentally was all he had. And I made my journey home with my pockets full of marbles. And when I got home, he said, I sat down and my sweet mother, whom I loved, became suddenly my judge. Every time I looked at her, she was staring straight at me. She knew. And she led me, he said, to a painful confession because I had said yes to something that we had previously said no to. And for a moment, Howard said, my life was completely disordered because I loved marbles more than my mother. And by her amazing, tough love, she restored me. I think this is what the journey of Lent is all about. It's not about your false self. It's about reality. It's about coming, it's about coming clean with God. Because Jesus has cut a path for us, and I've wandered, and so have you. But for these days, maybe it's time to say no to something good so that we can say yes to the best, to a God whose infinite love reorders our life and enables us to follow Jesus all the way to the cross. That's my prayer for me, for you, for us, to the glory of God. May it be so.